It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody could ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants Mobile app. We'll punch you in the nose for 60 minutes with a relentless competitive attitude. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Thanks so much for tuning in. He is Paul Dettino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes. Multiple ways to interact with us here on the program, including giving us a ring at 973-667-1960. Of course, you can utilize hashtag Giants Chat on Twitter as well. And as a reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. So the Giants had mandatory minicamp last week. They're going to have one or two more OTAs before they then officially break for the offseason period before returning in the latter part of July for training camp. So this is going to be the relatively quiet period that we're entering, Paul, for the offseason where teams are not anticipating hearing anything about their respective players. It's unlikely we're going to hear much about transactions. So we're going to really take our time to go over maybe some interesting articles, look ahead to some of the Giants' opponents this season in the upcoming weeks. And today, an interesting article that we came across on NFL.com, and it was written by Adam Rank, who is one of the writers for NFL.com. He also does a lot of fantasy analysis, and he broke down the state of the franchise, essentially, for the New York Giants. So there's a lot of different sections to this. There's a lot of different pieces. We'll go through it little by little, and then obviously we'll get your reaction on the phones as well as on Twitter. But it's always interesting to take a step back, Paul, and listen and read somebody else's perspective who may not be around the team on a daily basis. Well, as you know, every national expert has an opinion about every team in the league, and a lot of times you wonder what planet they live on because they'll start talking about things that you and I, because we live here and we basically understand and digest Giants football every day, we know that it's just clueless and it doesn't make any sense at all. Then there are other times where you get a national story like this one, which is very well thought out, it's got a lot of logical points in it, and, you know, it's certainly worth discussing and, and worth, uh, you know, hammering out. I, I, I really appreciate when a guy who is not connected, you know, to the local area is looking at it from afar and is able to actually dissect things in a logical and football-sensical manner. So I, uh, I give Adam Rank thumbs up for his, his piece today. So one of the things that he broke down was the key elements of the team, and he looked at it through the lens of the head coach and then a few different players at various positions. I actually thought an interesting quote that he put in the story, Paul, when he was talking about Joe Judge, and Joe Judge's approach came from Sterling Shepard. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but this was an interesting comment that he recently told Shepard the Oklahoma breakdown my guess is that is a local radio program in the Oklahoma area, which is, of course, where Sterling played college football. And on that program, when he was asked about Joe Judge, he said, quote, he's a tough coach. He's a tough coach, but that's what we needed. For the previous two coaches, we didn't do any conditioning or anything like that. But I will say last year was my first year of really having to condition. It kind of felt like Oklahoma all over again, end quote. So a few things to unravel here. Number one, I've brought up this point multiple times, Paul. I've said this roster was young. Guys are not that far removed from college. I didn't think it was going to be that big of an adjustment if Joe Judge was bringing to the table a lot of things that they did in college, which I think Sterling hinted at. 
Number two, it's interesting that of all the things Sterling raised here, he thought the conditioning emphasis was important compared to Joe Judge's personality and anything having to do with X's and O's. And I feel like sometimes that gets overlooked because when you get to week 15, week 16, in order to avoid injuries and feel as if you're in good shape to still perform, sometimes it's the things you did in training camp that can help you there. Well, I look at it differently, Lance, because I think when you talk about conditioning, you're talking about not only physical discipline, but mental discipline. And I think Joe Judge is all about ultimately having mental discipline. And I think the conditioning stuff, yes, from a physical perspective, you can keep your team healthy. You can keep them strong through four quarters. You can keep them active and, and at, at a, ma- a maximum level all the way through December. Sure, I don't dispute that at all. There's clearly an on-the-field benefit to guys being in the best condition they can be. But I think the conditioning is really more of an ends justifying the means because I think Joe Judge is all about the philosophy, the mentality, the intestinal fortitude, the guts, the character, and all that stuff that conditioning is going to bring you when you start chopping and chopping and chopping at that rock because that's the kind of thing that builds the character that I think he believes you have to have on a week-to-week basis to get through an NFL season successfully. Well, and that, I think, includes work ethic, too, establishing that strong work ethic early in the season. Now, once again, I'd have to ask Sterling Shepard exactly what he meant by conditioning, but based on the quote I just read, I believe he's talking about physical conditioning. I don't think he's referring to mental conditioning. That's not to say that that's not something that Joe Judge wasn't preaching to the team, but my takeaway from that quotation was he's saying Joe Judge and this coaching staff was emphasizing conditioning, meaning getting guys in physically good shape before the season even starts, which was something that the previous coaching staff, he's not necessarily criticizing them, but saying that that wasn't something that may have been focused in the early stages of the season. I think we're on two different pages here. I think you're right. That's exactly what Sterling Shepard said and what he meant. My point is, it is a vehicle that Joe Judge uses to get a team mentally tough and philosophically on the same page as to where he wants to go. So I'm with you. I get it. You know, this is a physical kind of thing. Okay, guys, we have to do these things physically to to be here. But I just think it's an ends or it's a means to justify an ends, I guess, is really what I should be saying because I look at the physical conditioning as a vehicle to a bigger, larger picture. And I, I think I can say that knowing Joe Judge as we do over the last year or so, that, that's, that's not something that's, uh, you know, too hard to understand when you, when you see the character of the man and how he likes to proceed. Sure. Well, and I also think that the whole point is to do those things early in the season to then reap the rewards later on. Whether it's physical or mental, you're setting a tone. And this, yes, to me, relates that's true. to... In the general sense, you're right. That's probably the easiest way to say it. He sets a tone. 100%. And this relates to, if you remember, right at the beginning of training camp last year, a big part of the storyline was Joe Judge is making these guys run laps. Coaches are also running laps. And, you know, people were saying to themselves, oh, you know, this is the old school approach. It's going to rub people the wrong way. And thankfully, that narrative died down as the season played out. It really did. In the moment, right, we tend to make things bigger than they need to be. 
But I do think that that's something that, and this is my interpretation of Sterling Shepard's quote that he was alluding to. But the other thing that Adam Rank wrote, and I think this is also an important point, he brought up Bruce Arians' approach to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers this past season. And for those of you who follow the NFL from a big picture perspective, Bruce doesn't hold back. Paul, okay? He will air out his true feelings. And he's really been true. that way, right, throughout his entire NFL career. It's yes. nothing new. It's, it's not like he came to Tampa Bay and all of a sudden started to grow an opinion. He he's is been quite doing that the character. Indeed. So he doesn't mind using the media as a conduit to sometimes get messages across to his players. He doesn't mind calling out guys in the media. And Adam Rank's point was that works when you're winning, meaning – you could brush it to the side. Maybe you're not going to rub players the wrong way because at the end of the day, the results are showing up in the standings. But when you don't win, there's not as much leeway with some of those tactics. And I'm not saying that Joe Judge does that. That's not the point because Joe Judge actually made it very clear to the media this year. I'm not going to call out players. I'm not going to be critical of them. I'm going to be extremely supportive of them when I speak about them publicly. But I guess the point is for any coach in the NFL, Joe Judge included, some of the things that you may do that come off as old school, that may not be necessarily in line with the new generation of players, which we always hear, Paul, it's a little bit easier to do that when all of a sudden the winds are piling up. When it doesn't work, maybe sometimes players are not nearly as open to those things. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why when you look at the Giants' record at the end of this season, it really kind of needs to be better than it did last year. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't know ultimately how many wins it will take to win the East or how many wins it will take to make the playoffs. But, you know, I think it's safe to say the Giants better have more than six, not just because the organization is growing impatient with what's happened, but because I think internally between the coaching staff and the players, uh, they need to start reaping some of the rewards and some of the fruits of their labor, too. I mean, this is the second year now under this new system. We all think it's going in the right direction. We believe things are improving. But if you don't see that evidence in today's society, you need it rather quickly. Uh, things start to, to go bad also rather quickly. Well, I also think there's a level of urgency just in general in the NFL because of the turnover rate. And I also include impatience with that. I always say the organizations that preach patience, more often than not, usually are able to build stability, meaning that even when there's a call for change, they say, hey, we feel we're on a good track. Let's see how it plays out. But there's a lot of organizations where two to three years, if they are not happy with the results, they're moving mm -hmm. on and they're starting mm -hmm. all over again. And hey, sometimes it works. Sometimes you bring in the right players, you bring in the right coach, everything gets bottled up together and it works. But then other times you feel as if you're setting your franchise behind because you're basically starting from scratch all over again. Yeah. So I do think Joe Judge, and I'm not saying you were bringing up this point, my interpretation again, Paul, I do think that there's leeway that he has, meaning I don't think that well, he does. he's from under ownership, an immense he right. Yeah, he's not under an immense amount of pressure I agree this with season. You. Okay? I agree with you. He's not on the hot seat. I did not mean to to. No, and I didn't take impression. it that way either. Yeah. Okay. But – Interestingly, and this is where I wanted to go based on what this article was also alluding to, if you were to put Joe Judge on one side, Daniel Jones on the other, and I was to pose the question, 
who is under more pressure? Who is facing more urgency? I don't think without any question it's the quarterback versus the head coach here this season. Totally agree with you, 1,000%. I mean, you know, Daniel Jones needs to take that next step to lead the Giants to the promised land. But at the same time, yes, his success is going to be tied to the coach. And if he does well, well, that means the coach does well. That's just part of the deal. But but I think one of the things to keep in mind with Joe Judge is that when he got here, you know, John Mara, the Giants co-owner, did say that he does want to have more patience with this regime. Uh, they They think they've learned from the last couple of coaches that they've had that maybe – Things just didn't work out right because maybe there was a little bit too much of a of a quick reaction to some things. And so they do not only want to believe in Joe Judge's core beliefs, but they also want to give him more support and more time than maybe they had in the previous administrations. So I do think you are 100% correct. He's got a lot more leeway than maybe some others would in his same shoes. But again, Lance... You know, when you say two or three years, a lot of times is the, the time frame for some of these guys. Is it any wonder this is what we have in today's unrestricted free agency and today's salary cap sure. and the framework of the NFL, which is designed to promote the quicksand of mediocrity and is designed to blow teams up as quickly as they get good. Uh, so th- there's really not a lot of room for patience under the structure of today's NFL. No, I think that's a very fair point because think about this. The players you come in with year one as a head coach, depending on how the contracts are structured, as you hit on, Paul, by the time you're two years in, you may lose some of that nucleus, right? The market changes, players move on, you draft guys, your depth chart changes. So that's another reason why sometimes patience is not preached because the roster changes so much. It's not as if you come in year one and you say, all right, this group, I'm going to have them for three to four years, and we're going to be able to be judged on how we worked with this same group for three to four years. In the NBA, maybe you get away with that because your stars are under contract, and then you change some of the guys on the bench, the rotational players. In the NFL, your stars can even change relatively quickly, especially if you didn't lock them up to long-term deals. No, you're 100% correct, Lance, and that's the problem. You see, because as you take over a struggling team and you start building what it is that you want to build, well, as you say, the, the guys who are supposed to be the core and the foundation of what you think is good, all of a sudden, their deals are up and they're out the door. And it's like, okay, well, wait a minute. I was trying to rebuild the bathroom and the kitchen, but the living room floor just fell and created a huge hole in my living room. Now I got to go back and deal with that too. So that's why just the whole structure of the way the league is built these days does not really allow for an awful lot of patience. That's just the nature of the game. It's a shame, you know, guys like Chuck Knoll never would have made it today. But when he was with the Steelers initially, they were a disaster, and they stuck with it. And look at that organization on how they preach patience. The Steelers are one of the very few that really believe you need to look at the long term. 
Absolutely. Well, that's why I only need one hand to tell you how many coaches and GMs they've had since mm-hmm. Chuck Knoll moved on from that organization, because even after Chuck Knoll, they continue to preach that. I think that's been well documented. It's funny, the way you were describing the fluctuation and the movement of a roster was reminding me of, I don't know if you ever saw the Tom Hanks movie, The Money Pit, yes. where he inherits that house, remember, <laughs> that continues to fall apart. So I'm, I'm envisioning when you were describing how the furniture or the living room is broken, and then you're working on the bedroom, and then all of a sudden there's an issue with the bedroom and you got to go back to the living room. I don't know. I just, I was picturing the plot and the storyline. It's a good analogy though, Lance. It does work. 100% because just when you think you've solidified one room, now you have major issues elsewhere in the house. So there's a good way to uh, look at how an NFL roster is composed and so forth. We brought up the pressure facing Daniel Jones versus Joe Judge. And when he was breaking down Daniel Jones in this article that we're talking about, which is the state of the 2021 Giants written by Adam Rank on NFL.com, one of the comparisons he mentioned when talking about the outlook or makeup of Daniel Jones, he said, quote, I really do think he could be a Tony Romo type, but now it's on him to deliver, end quote. I think Romo is one of the most underrated quarterbacks in NFL history. So if he's comparing him to Tony Romo, that to me is an excellent compliment. That should not be interpreted as a negative at all. But I was bringing up Tony Romo's stats, Paul, just to give an idea. Number one, Romo had some time to sit and watch before he took over as a starter. Okay, that's important. If we're at least going apples to apples here, Romo was on the roster in 04 and 05, but he did not take over as the starting quarterback till 16. So, you know, that's like an Aaron Rodgers. That's like a Phillip Rivers. Guys that really benefited from just sitting back observing. And Romo watched Drew Bledsoe at work. Now, you could say, well, Daniel had Eli. But remember, Daniel Jones took over very quickly into that first rookie season so it's not like he saw Eli operate as the starter for half the season and then took over a little bit different but Romo his first season he had 19 touchdowns 13 interceptions he completed 65 percent of his passes by year two Romo had completion percentage in the same ballpark 64 but he had 36 touchdowns and 19 interceptions. And then his numbers remained pretty steady in the third year in 2008. He started three less games. So the touchdowns went down a little to 26, 14 interceptions. But I guess what I'm saying is you saw a stronger surge out of Romo earlier in his career as a starter compared to what we're seeing out of Daniel Jones thus far. That's the only difference I would point out. Well, I'm not a big Tony Romo guy. So quite honestly, I don't necessarily know that I'd like to entertain that conversation, but I will say this, you are right in that Tony Romo was able to watch a little bit more at the beginning of his career than Daniel Jones was. And I do think that that does kind of create a little bit of a different dynamic for his arc than it does for Jones's. But at least in terms of style of play, Romo was a mobile guy, right? That had the ability to extend plays and run, which Daniel Jones, I think has that. There is that a little underdog mentality with both quarterbacks. I mean, Romo clearly was overlooked. We're talking about a guy that wasn't even drafted. So Daniel maybe comes with higher expectations because of where he was drafted. But even where Daniel was drafted, I still think he is somewhat overlooked because he wasn't necessarily crowned as the guy within his draft class. So I guess if Adam was going towards maybe character trait, physical trait, mobility trait. I do think there are some similarities there to examine. I suppose so. 
Again, it's not something I. Boy, really you don't really of. think too fondly of this. <laughs> I'm just reading into your reaction. Here. No, I, I look. I was never a Tony Romo fan. Okay, I I always appreciated that he did have escapability. He did have uh, a knack for making unique throws with arm angles and on the run and and twisting. And he, he had that spinorama move uh, yep. in the pocket that he could use to get away from the pass rush to then complete a pass downfield. So, yes, there were some very good qualities that Tony Romo had. Ultimately, when push came to shove, I never thought he was the kind of quarterback who could get a team over the hump and get them to the next level. I didn't think he had the it factor, as many people in the game like to say. Uh, I would like to believe that at some point in time, hopefully sooner rather than later, Daniel Jones proves that he has the it factor that Romo so badly lacked and one of the reasons why Dallas never went very far in the playoffs. But uh, that's about as far as, as, as I want to go with this. I mean, I, I'm i just not uh, – I, I, I don't like to compare people to Tony Romo because I never thought Tony Romo was as good a real quarterback as he was a fantasy football quarterback. And we could probably debate that for three hours. But to me, he was a fantasy football quarterback. Um, that's, you know, that's it. He wouldn't be on my team if I was coaching a real team, I'll tell you that. Well, listen, that's fine. You're entitled to your perspective. We clearly disagree from that standpoint because I think Tony Romo was more than a fantasy quarterback. I do think that if you look at his consistency, and what I mean his completion percentage, his statistics, the improvement in turnovers from where he was early in his career. I mean, you saw constant improvement with Romo. I think the knock on him and where I thought you were going to go was the durability questions and concerns. The fact that, you know, the collarbone and the inability to stay on the field at times. And that probably is one of the things that overshadows his career and maybe holds people back from putting him in the caliber of some other quarterbacks. But for what he did and how he consistently was able to produce to try to get that team to the playoffs, I think he's overlooked in that category. So that's why I elevate him a little bit more than you do. That's fine, you know. But I will say, unfortunately for Daniel Jones, durability has been a little bit of an issue for him earlier. Well, and that's why, but hold, I don't mean to cut you off. When you look at Adam's comparison, the more layers we're peeling back here, Paul, I do think there's some merit to that because here we go. We just hit on injuries, which is something we didn't talk about. Well, Daniel has now missed at least two games in each of his first two seasons. So Romo had the issue of durability too. That's where I think he was going. I don't think it was their mirror images of one another, but character traits on and off the field there is some similarity there i don't think it's a crazy stretch yeah i i suppose there are certainly a few things that do resemble i i I wouldn't necessarily argue with that well and i would argue daniel's got a long way to go too to even go to the point where you look at the longevity of a tony romo career as well okay we're just scratching the surface with daniel jones it's very early in his career you know romo the complete set you had a pretty good accomplishment in terms of individual statistics and what he helped his team do. So I wouldn't go so far to say that Daniel Jones is a complete Tony Romo version, but early stages of the career, character traits, once again, I do think it adds up a little. But I think the bigger point is this is a critical year for Daniel Jones, and that's the strongest point to take away. Adam hits on that. You and I have hit on that. Anybody else looking at the Giants, the fact that what they brought in this offseason, the talent around him, 
You certainly need to take into consideration the things around him working. They need to execute. There needs to be health in that department. But at the same time, you do want to see an elevation in the execution rate and decision-making out of Daniel Jones. That's not a stretch at all. No, not at all. I mean, we, we all know that if the Giants are going to be what they can be this year, uh, Daniel Jones is going to have to perform at a high level. I mean, that's just – he's the quarterback. We, we, I mean, there's not much debate there. Uh, I've said many times the three potential Achilles in my mind that could leave the Giants short of their goal this year would be if the offensive line does not internally progress – uh, if Daniel Jones, uh, as number three, does not progress, but also number two, as, I, as I've said many a times about Saquon Barkley, they, that running back room has to produce, whether it's Barkley or whether somebody else like Booker steps up and takes the role. Uh, those three things, in my opinion, if any of those go awry and go awry badly, that could derail the Giants' hopes. And... Uh, I, I don't I don't see it any other way. Well, I'm glad you actually took us into those two topics because this is something also that Adam wrote about. Number one, and I don't know if he was talking about MVP in the conversation on the national scene. I think he was more referring to maybe MVP of the team. But he had the label projected 2021 MVP. Once again, my interpretation is MVP of the Giants. Right. I agree okay, with you. Right? So we're on the same page there. And Saquon Barkley's name is next to that label. And he talked about him returning, obviously, from the ACL injury, looking to get back to his 2018 form, that production. All fair points. Plus, remember, Wayne Goleman was the guy that filled in admirably for Saquon Barkley, and he's no longer on the team. He's with San Francisco. So I'm with you there in terms of if Barkley is maybe not ready to go in the early stages of the season, how you're going to have to lean on a guy like Devontae Booker and maybe any of the other veterans that make the team. But I still, in my personal opinion, Paul, I'm not putting MVP label on Barkley. I don't view him as having to be the MVP to help get this team into playoff contention. Well, because there are other factors that are sure. involved. Uh, you look at the fact that the offensive line must do its job for the running back to really max out in his job. Uh, I mean, in a way, this goes back to the spiderweb argument that I always try to give to people when I say you can't label one unit or one player responsible for a win or a loss. The game is a spiderweb. I mean, if the offensive line doesn't play well, well, guess what? Daniel Jones is going to have trouble. Uh, Barkley or whoever's carrying the ball in the backfield is going to have trouble. That's just the way it is. I mean, the game is so intertwined that it's very, very, very difficult and very unique in certain situations where you can actually look at a question inside a bubble and say, okay, definitively, this is a problem because most things in the NFL are tied together. Well, the other reason why I don't feel Barkley is the MVP, in addition to all the things you talked about, but I'm also looking at a team, Paul, that ran the ball effectively last season, even without Saquon Barkley. Well, they right. averaged over 100 yards per game, and they averaged 
nearly four and a half yards per carry. That put them 13th in the NFL. Yeah, yeah, they did okay. They did okay. I think we would all agree there were a better run-blocking offensive front than they were pass protection. Well, you could certainly win games with those type of averages, I guess is my point, Paul. I don't think the run game is what held them back last season is what I'm getting at. Yeah, I, I agree with you. The problem is now, as they try to enhance Daniel Jones's production, I do believe it's going to be important for the run game to stay at least where it was, if not get better. Because now they're going to try to drag that passing game along and to try to get it to another level. And to do that, they're going to need to command respect in the running game. And that's why, you know, without Goldman here, Okay, you and I are looking at this depth chart and we're like, okay, do we really know what Booker is going to do? Is he going to be as good or better than what Goldman was if Barkley can't get on the field? I I don't have an answer. I just don't. I hope so. I think they think so. But, you know, if not, does that mean Clement or Armstead or that guy? I don't know. I don't know. Well, you know what we'll find out, Paul, interestingly, the more and more I'm listening to what you're saying? If our argument is that Wayne Goleman did a really nice job filling in for Saquon Barkley, and I stand by that statement, I think the numbers back that up both visually and the more and more you break it down. Was that because of the offensive line's ability to run block, or was it the product of Wayne Goleman's decision-making and what he decided to do in finding the holes? What I mean by that is if Barkley is not ready to go or they work in some of these other running backs and the production falls off a little bit compared to last season, then you have enough evidence to say, well, maybe Wayne Goleman deserves a little bit more credit. Maybe it was Goleman more so than him just looking at what was operating in front of him and taking advantage of that. So I think we're sort of in that crossroads area where we're wondering, was it Goleman? Was it the offensive line? Was it a combination of both? You have to then see new parts being thrown into it to really truly know what was the key X factor in the run game last season. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a fair question. I think Goleman is a quality NFL back. Unfortunately, his contract was up. And the truth of the matter is, I don't think he had much... um, Oh, I guess the word is much heart for re-signing here. I do think he was looking for a change of scenery, and yeah. and he went. I'm So now he's a San Francisco 49er, and that's just what, the way it is. But if you said to me that, that running back X, whoever the number two back is going to be on this team this year, and again, they've got three veteran candidates right now, but if you said to me running back X is going to be as productive as, as Goldman was last year, if he is called upon, I'd say that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I'd, I'd like to see more, but I'd say that that's pretty good and that at least gives the passing game a chance to succeed. I would like to see it be a little bit more, to be frank with you, but it would give them a chance. More yeah. importantly, I'd like to know that whoever's back there on third down is going to help with pass protection. And that was really missing from this offense last year. As we had said many times before, uh, Deion Lewis, who was supposed to be really good at that, I don't know I don't know what happened to him last year, but he didn't show me much in terms of pass pro. And I definitely think that that hurt. 
No, I think that's a great point. And that's where you could argue the semblance of the run game then all of a sudden impacts either positively or negatively in terms of your passing game. What the running back is doing to aid pass protection, especially on third down, because we've seen some issues in that department. 973-667-1960, that's the telephone number. You could also use hashtag Giants Chat on Twitter. A reminder, limited Giants season tickets are on sale now for the 2021 season. In addition to ticket savings, membership benefits include access to exclusive events, experiences, pre-sales, and more. You can lock in your seats starting at just $100. Call 888-NYG-1925, or you can visit Giants.com slash tickets for more information. Also, don't miss out on your chance to experience a premier hospitality experience watching Giants games and world-class concerts in 2021 as a Giants suite partner. Limited full-season locations are available, or you can place a deposit for individual games. You can call 888-NYG-1925 or visit Giants.com slash suites. For more information and a reminder, let's all get vaccinated. Go to covid19.nj.gov slash vaccine to register. We are going over some of the highlights from an interesting article on NFL.com written by Adam Rank, which is entitled State of the 2021 New York Giants. Had a number of interesting elements. We were talking about the run game. I'm looking over the stats, and I'm curious your perspective, Paul. I'm looking at the yardage per carry that they had on the ground in all 16 games last season. They had less than four yards per carry just three times last season. Mm-hmm. I don't know what number in your head you would say is the cutoff, but to me, if you get just over four yards per carry, I would say that's solid. So if you're in the ballpark of 4.2, 4.3, and you could do that consistently on the season, I think you're trending in a very positive direction. So I'm not getting caught up in the fact that, because a lot of people will say, oh, well, they had that stretch, remember, where they ran for over 100 yards. But it could take you 35 to 40 carries to get 100 yards. So sure. I don't get caught up in the totals. I'm looking at when I see the Giants' run game numbers last season and the fact that they had just three games where they were under four yards per carry, that to me is extremely encouraging. Well, I'm going to steal a philosophy that a uh, retired basketball coach who's part of the college basketball uh, TV package that I do, and he always says it's not about how many baskets you make, it's when you make them. And I think that's my bigger issue for the Giants' running game. If I have a complaint, it's not about how many yards per carry they average because their number is more than respectable. The problem is when. And I've said this so many times over the last decade on this program. When I talk about you need a power running game to keep a defense honest, well, that's because on third and two, I need to know that with a very high frequency, I can bully my way for that first down. I don't, by any stretch of the imagination, you guys know because my face turns beet red when I see an offense on third and two going into an empty backfield with a spread formation. That just infuriates me because when you've got a one, two, even three yards to go for a first down, I want to be able to tell that defense, guess what? Like Joe Judge says, we're going to punch you in the nose for 60 minutes and we're going to take it take it to you like tough New Yorkers do. That's what I want to see. And that, to me, is what makes an effective running game. That's what the Giants did. If you remember in 2011, the Giants had what was an effective running game in spots where they needed it to be effective. They had 
a terrible running game that season as a whole. But when it came down the stretch into December and into the playoffs, even though the numbers were not very large, they were able to effectively move the chains in spots when they had to. So it's not about how much you do, it's when you do it. And well, that, to, to me, is the critical part. Football. Yeah. Situational football. There you go. Situational yeah. football. Short and that's what situations. I want to see. Correct. And I'm with you there. And that's why the more and more, see, we digest and break this down, you start to think of different elements. So if you were to ask me, okay, if you like the numbers overall statistically where the Giants finished on the ground, well, what's the area specifically, in addition to obviously Saquon coming back and adding a new dynamic, I would say I would like to see more effectiveness in running the ball in the red zone. Okay, that's where I don't think they thrived consistently throughout the season. Correct. Where there were opportunities where, okay, you got inside the opponent's 20, and then all of a sudden the space is tighter, there's less room to operate, and I do not think they ran the football as effectively as they needed to, and that's why this offense only averaged 17.5 points. So if you were to pinpoint a specific facet of the run game, my response to people would be they have to pound the ball better in the red zone. They do that then that should help then increase the scoring opportunities. 1,000%, Lance. I could not agree with you more. And just to give you an example, okay, uh, of, of what you're talking about, last season on first and goal from the five-yard line or in, do you want to just take a guess at, at how the Giants did? Well, what is the total that we're talking about? Are you talking about how many carries they had or the total yardage on all those carries? They were only in first and goal from inside the five 11 times last year, which was the third fewest amount of times in the National Football League. Not And you know why that is? Because when they got inside the 20, okay, if they were going to take it in, they, they wound up passing it. Because a team that runs inside the 20 and can effectively move the pile and move the chains inside the 20 is going to inch their way down to plenty more of opportunities inside the five-yard line. But that's not what the Giants did. They settled for a lot of field goals, and they settled for a lot of throws and a lot of incompletions, and it's one of the reasons why their passing numbers in terms of touchdowns were, were, were just very dismal. Yeah, because they they just they could not keep teams honest when they took the ball inside their red zone, and you know I mean come on eleven times first and goal inside the five. Look by comparison, the NFL average was eighteen. The Buffalo Bills led the league with twenty nine first and goals from the five or closer. And Buffalo didn't even have that strong of a run game because they, they barely ran the football. They last didn't. Season. They didn't. Yeah. But they, Josh Allen they, ran the ball. They yeah. did have a quarterback who, sure. again, makes me cringe. Did a lot of stuff with his legs. No, there's no <laughs> doubt about it. Just out of curiosity, do you have the entire league in front of you, Paul? Are yes, you I do. At that right now, where did Pittsburgh end up in that category? Because that was another team that struggled to run the ball in the red zone. I'm just curious. Believe it or not, Pittsburgh had 24. First in goals from the five or in, and actually scored 20 touchdowns out of those 24 trips, believe it or not. See, that number, I would have never guessed based on just visually watching all of those games last season. But when you have that breakdown in terms of from the first and goal in five, so that's the result of a rushing touchdown or perhaps a passing touchdown? 
in those circumstances. No, the the number is just a touchdown scored when they okay, were so in meaning that they could have been. That could have been Big Ben throwing a touchdown pass, though. It could have from been. first at goal at five. It, it, it could have been, and and there's certainly a possibility that many of those 24 times when they got the first to goal inside the five, there's certainly a possibility. And oh, I bet just, you they were a lot of passing situations. I'm sure they were. <laughs> I would I'm, because that's just the way that Ben ben, yeah. ben really relied on a short passing game last year. Yep. He had to. He didn't have much choice. So. You know, somehow they were able to compile a tremendous amount of opportunities inside the opponent's five. But for the Giants, look, the lowest three teams, Jacksonville had six trips, first and goal inside the five. The Jets had eight, and the Giants had 11. That, to me, you know, again, there can be an outlier, like what Ben did, passing the ball to get down that close. But to me, generally speaking, that number says you were not, able to grind the ball against the defense once you got inside the 20. There's no doubt about it. And then on top of that, okay, here's the other thing that is in line with those numbers. Who do you think had the three lowest scoring offenses in the NFL last season? (laughs) Bingo. I mean, this spells it out perfectly. It was the Jets, 32nd, the Giants, 31, the Jacksonville Jaguars were 30th. So it should not surprise anyone that they also struggled with those first and goal from the five situations, okay? Right. Here's another example where a lot of these facets are interlocked. All right, let's open up the phone lines here as we move along. 973-667-1960. Zach is in Florida. He joins us. What's happening, Zach? Hey, guys. How you doing? Doing all right. What's on your mind? Hi. Good. Um, so I was just wondering. I have two questions for you guys. Um, first one was I was wondering what percent of the snaps you think – um, Kyle Rudolph versus Evan Ingram will get this season. Just curious to see what you guys think as far as Evan Ingram's role changing and what Kyle Rudolph will bring. Um, and then the second question, I know you guys have been speaking a lot about the quarterback play and the, uh, the rushing attack, but it's more about the offense in general. I know it's the same playbook mostly, the same quarterback obviously. I was just wondering how you guys think the offense will change because I know they'll, they'll add like some more wrinkles as far as based on like who they got in free agency with Kenny Galladay, Kadarius Tony, some more playmakers back, maybe they go a little bit less twelve and thirteen personnel. I was just worth like curious what you guys thought as far as like maybe the passing attack, if that will change it all. And then I'll take it off the air. Thanks guys. All right. Well thank you for the phone call. If you just want a level of comparison, Paul, last year I'm bringing up the snap counts for the tight ends. Evan and remember this was the first season that Evan played healthy where he was able to stay on the field. He played 82% of the snaps at tight yep. end. Then Levine Toilolo was at 27%. Caden Smith was at 44%. Those were the three main tight ends. So if you were to ask me, Kyle Rudolph is going to eat away at Caden and Levine. I don't think he's eating away at Evan so much. I'd agree with you. You know... I think what you're going to see is a lot of double tight end sets, more so than last year. I would think so. I don't know that for a fact, but I would think so. That seems to me to be the way that Garrett would love to have gone last year if he had the personnel to do it. I just don't think that they necessarily thought they could get as much production out of the guys on their roster as they can with both Rudolph and Ingram in the lineup at the same time. 
I'm with you there. The other thing, which is connected to the other question that was posed our way in terms of how things may change on offense, I'm with you. If you're going to utilize the tight ends more, and remember, there were plenty of times where he pushed in as many tight ends as possible. I always think back to that Seattle game. He used three tight ends, and part mm-hmm. of that was because Daniel Jones was hurt. I understand that, but Jason Garrett is not going to be of the mindset, even if you go back to Dallas's offense, Paul, where just because he brought in Kadarius Tony and Kenny Galladay, they're going to start abandoning the run. I just I don't see that happening. So if everybody thinks that the way to go for the Giants is for Daniel to throw the ball 37 to 40 times and you should just get caught up in being pass-happy because that's the rest of the league, I completely disagree. I think he's going to try to be balanced, and I think he's going to utilize the tight ends to help get the run game going in conjunction with the offensive line. And I do think that last year, like you said, the first year that Evan Ingram was healthy for a full 16 games, I mean, prior to that, the most snaps he'd ever played in his career was 72% back during his rookie season when he only missed one game. And subsequently, because of injuries, okay, he was down to 46 and 42% as I look at his snap count here on the screen. I mean, it's quite clear that Jason Garrett and, and the Giants, well, I know they've only been now, this is going to be their second year, so they weren't responsible for 17 to 19. But, but it's quite clear that they do want him on the field a lot. And as long as he's capable of getting out there between the lines, Evan Ingram is still going to be your starting tight end. I don't know. Maybe that's what the caller was trying to allude to. Maybe he was thinking that maybe Rudolph could steal the starting job and be the number one, and Ingram would flop spots and be number two on the depth chart. I highly think that's unlikely. I look at it actually similarly to where Kyle's coming from. Because remember, he was on the Minnesota Vikings last season, and they also recently drafted Irv Smith. So if you look at the fact that the Vikings utilized tight ends, because remember, they were pounding the ball with Dalvin Cook, and I'm actually going to bring up the Vikings snap counts last season just to perhaps see if we can read into anything. Now, once again, we're talking about different coordinators, different philosophy, but Kyle, when he spoke to the Giants media, Paul, had emphasized, because everybody was like, well, why did Kyle's numbers go down? And Rudolph said, hey, they asked me to block, okay? My job in that offense was I'm going to stay on the line of scrimmage and help block. Mm -hmm. That was what they asked me to do. Now, do I think that the Giants are going to completely utilize him as a blocker? No. I think they value what he could do in the red zone. But here's the breakdown for the Vikings last season. And this is impressive. It was really 50-50, Paul. Kyle played just under 53% of the snaps at tight end for the Vikings. Irv Smith Jr. played just over 50%. Okay? So Kyle was asked to stay in as a blocker. Irv was more of their receiving guy. I would not be surprised if you get a lot of snaps out of Kyle Rudolph, but more often than not, they're going to ask him to help solidify the offensive line and aid Saquon Barkley in the run game. Sure, sure. I would I would have uh, no surprise at, at that result if that's what happened. I, I would say, though, that I do believe because of Rudolph's receiving prowess, six foot five, uh, very reliable hands, very smart player, To be frank with you, you want to compare somebody to a Dallas guy like you were talking about Romo before, you could say that uh, Kyle Rudolph has a lot of Jason Witten in him. In terms of the size? Absolutely. In terms of size And red zone targets and so forth. Yes. Size, hands, and ability to get open because he's incredibly smart. He's got a lot of Witten in him in those regards.
Yeah, he's been in the league for some time. He's seen his fair share of defenses. All of those comparisons, I think, are fair. And, hey, we know Jason Garrett loved himself some Jason Witten, okay? <laughs> in terms oh, of boy. all those years, right? And Giants fans know this firsthand because Jason had a field day against the Giants more often than not. So mm -hmm. he knew that that was a guy that was reliable in the open field on third down. He was also very reliable in the red zone. Actually, remember, and I know you're going to get annoyed, but you know me, I won't shy away from bringing up things that annoy you. That game where Dallas came back a few years ago, I believe it was week one. Jason Witten was the one that caught the game-winning touchdown. Yes, Lance. Okay, I'm just pointing that out <laughs> to just emphasize what we're talking about. And I'm expecting that exact <clears throat> reaction. So I'm of kind course of you did. happy you, that uh, I got that reaction because that was my goal. I you know what is interesting yes. as you look at Kyle Rudolph's numbers, though, and, and I'm pulling them up here to, to just look for, for a certain uh, type of trend thing. And what's interesting to me as we try to project as to how the Giants are going to use him now, we know last year he was asked to block a lot more. Yes, you're absolutely correct. His snap count was down. He missed four games because of injury. His targets were down to 37, which was incredibly low, you know, for a guy who, who you know, in many of his seasons was 70, 80, 90 targets. You know, one year he had 132 targets. So there's no doubt that his role changed significantly in the Vikings offense. But the one number that kind of stuck out to me in a reverse kind of way, look at his yards per target. Nine yards per target, which was by far his career high. This is a guy who, for his NFL tenure, was only averaging 6.7 yards per target and had never gone above 7.7 .7 yards per target. 2018 was his career high. And yet last year, the Vikings had a nine yards per target average on his throws. Now, why do I see that as significant? Because the Giants, they're not afraid to throw to Ingram downfield. Okay, we've, we've seen them do that with him many times before. Okay, but, but his yards per target, believe it or not, is only seven. And God knows... Toilolo, forget about it. Don't even talk about his. Yeah, well, because, I mean, he's never know, been he's a, a blocker, tight end. right? Correct. Yeah. And Caden Smith is another guy. Forget about it. Caden Smith is not, not catching balls downfield. He is not a vertical threat. He's a short yardage, check down guy. He is not threatening a defense with anything vertical. Yet somehow, someway, at this advanced age, even though he was used less, Kyle Rudolph became a vertical guy for them last year at nine yards a target. That sticks out to me. I need, I need to know why that was. I'm going to have to talk to somebody out there in Minnesota. I need to know why that was, and is it actually possible that maybe he'll be more of a vertical threat this year than anybody thinks? Interesting. I wonder if it has to do with the route combinations and what they asked him to run, if that was a product of that. Because I want to piggyback off of your point. You were focusing on the targets. And what's interesting, they drafted Irv Smith in the second round in 2019 out of Alabama. When you look at Irv Smith's arrival and Kyle Rudolph's numbers, they're synonymous. What I mean by that is Irv arrives, Kyle's targets go down. I don't think that's a coincidence, okay? Mm -hmm. 
Right. My point is, when they drafted Irv Smith, their goal was, hey, he's our receiving tight end, Kyle, okay? We're going to ask you to do some different things. So my point is, the route combinations, when they actually asked both of those guys to run, maybe the depth on the route combos for Kyle was a little bit deeper when both tight ends were on the field, and that's why, even though he didn't have an overwhelming amount of targets, as you pointed out, he had 37 last year, but he still had nine yards per target, something maybe in terms of how they structured their offense within the scheme and Gary Kubiak. I think that may have had something to do with it. Once again, this is without any film study of this. I'm just Correct. putting two to two together because I do notice that the numbers dipped when Irv Smith arrived. Case in point, in 2018, Paul, Kyle Rudolph had 82 targets. It went from 82 to 48. And I don't want to hear that it has to do with games. He played 16 games in both seasons. Right. So if the games remain steady, but the targets went down, my response is you drafted a young kid. You wanted to get him on the field. You felt he was a better receiver than Kyle Rudolph. So that's why Kyle didn't have as many opportunities. Well, just look at this. And again, I'm going to have to do some, some film study or some conversation with a guy in Minnesota because not only do you look at Rudolph at nine yards a target last year, Irv Smith was 8.5 yards a target. So you're telling me that both of these tight ends were going downfield on most of their route combinations. That, that's what those numbers tell yeah. me. Absolutely. And, and my goodness, maybe if I'm Jason Garrett, maybe I'm looking at some of that Minnesota film and I'm saying to myself, well, let's have Rudolph and Ingram do some of that stuff they were doing with the Vikings. Especially if Rudolph is comfortable running those things. There's no doubt about it. I think the other aspect, though, that I think is important to take into consideration, and once again, this is why context is important. You look at the Vikings – Stephon Diggs was traded to Buffalo last season. Okay, just think about this, Paul. Now, I understand they drafted Justin Jefferson, but Adam Thielen missed some time. He had COVID. My point is they didn't have a true number three wide receiver on that team. They had guys that were capable of, you know, running some routes, filling in, but it was really a two-man operation. So your tight end in that offense, that was your third wide receiver. And that may have also played into why, as we're looking at the numbers, why you were having your tight ends go a little bit deeper down the field because you didn't have a true, reliable number three option. That's Fair what point. I would also point to. Fair point. Now think how dangerous this offense can be, okay, if the Giants have a running back who can pick up a blitz, if they've got an offensive line that can hold its own in pass pro, and now Daniel Jones can survey the field and you can send either of your tight ends or both on a deeper route, and you've also got Galladay and you've got Slayton and you've got Shepard or Ross, whoever else you have out there on the field during that given play, holy smokes. You talk about putting some pressure on a defense. This Giants offense, now again, I'm with you. I think they need to establish a power running game and to have balance. But when they need to throw it, they could really put a lot of heat on the other team. Well, and I think the other thing that's connected to all of this is, which I think you just alluded to, Garrett could get very creative in terms of where he lines guys up and what type of routes he's asking them to run. Because... If you look at, if Kyle Rudolph is comfortable going a little bit further down the field and Evan has that flexibility, and then you just listed the Giants, unlike the Vikings, they have three wide receivers, okay? They have three guys that you feel good can be productive. So it's a little bit different in terms of the dynamics of the Minnesota Vikings, but you can have Kyle and Evan run 
one or two route combinations in X amount of plays, and then you could completely take the defense and catch them off guard and having them run various other combinations depending on what personnel you have on the field on other plays. So I, I think that's something interesting to monitor. How does he utilize the personnel? What routes does he ask them to run? When you have tight ends that are capable of going deep but also could do some damage in short yardage. That is certainly anything that an offensive coordinator would ask for. He'd want versatility and flexibility in terms of his personnel and route combinations. I don't think any coordinator is going to complain from that standpoint. But here's the other thing that we're talking about. Can all of these guys stay healthy? Okay, that's the million-dollar question because you only accomplish that, Paul, when you have all of those guys at your disposal as opposed to us just talking about it in the middle of June when we're right in the offseason. Well, again, though, Lance, you're 100% correct. That that has to be a, a factor. But the other factor has to be if you're going to send these different combinations out, you need to know that your five up front can hold up. Oh, without a and doubt. And you need yeah. to know your running back is going to pick up the blitz because otherwise you can't send your tight ends on vertical routes. They've got to stay in. So so there are it's the health factor and it's also the responsibility of the backs and the offensive linemen if the tight ends are going to be that much involved in a vertical passing game. This is where that spider web continues to weave and cross over in different facets of the game. Well, and this actually allows us to circle back to the article that we've been focusing on throughout the course of this program by Adam Rank on NFL.com because Daniel Jones, when he first met with the media during this offseason phase, Everybody was asking him, Daniel, is there a lot of pressure on you? Do you think that there's a critical third year? And one of the quotes that he threw out, he says, hey, it takes 11 guys, okay? It's going to take the 10 other guys around me. And yes, that's a cliched line. I get it. But the reason why there's validity to that is because of what you just laid out, Paul, is the fact that we've seen this where teams go out in the offseason. They bring in a lot of weapons. Everybody gets excited. They look at the team through a fantasy lens. They look at a team through a realistic lens, and they say, oh, this team's going to be unstoppable. People are doing this with Tennessee, for example, right? Tennessee just got Julio Jones and A.J. Brown they have and Derrick Henry, and you got some tight ends, and everybody's talking about who's going to stop Tennessee, and that's great. Hey, we can have these conversations about every team on June 14th, but if your offensive line does it give your quarterback an opportunity to capitalize and take advantage of all those weapons? And you become a one-dimensional offense, which means you really don't have a run game. Your quarterback's throwing 37 to 40 times a game. I don't care, Paul, if you brought in an army of pro bowlers. It really doesn't matter at the end of the day. So mm -hmm. while it's a very attractive what the Giants have on paper, there's those things that are the down-and-dirty facets of football that is really going to determine the outlook of this team. And that can't be dismissed when you get enamored with all of these weapons. There's no doubt. And look, just ask the Dallas Cowboys about what happened to their offensive line last season. It was decimated. And everybody has been saying, well, Jesus, look at all the guys the Cowboys have. They can pass it. They can run it. They, they can do it all. They're going to be one of the most explosive offenses in the league this season. Well, if that offensive line can't stay on the field and do what they need to do, so much for those numbers. You Pittsburgh's know? another example, Paul. You could look at a lot of Absolutely. different teams last year that struggled with their offensive line. Sure. Yeah. No question. So, and, and just another reason why the run game also needs to take some of the pressure off of those linemen and the passing game. So balance is always going to be the key. 
Let's head back to the phone lines as we move along here on Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Lance Metal Paul Dettino with you. Randy is in Jackson, New Jersey. What's happening, Randy? Hi. Nothing and everything. I, I just can't wait for this season. This is going to be one of the great seasons in the history of New York Giant football. But the reason I called was I'm a tough grader, and I go on every Giant website every single day. And you too, Paulie D., John Schmelk, you are the greatest. You cover the Giants like nobody else. You're <laughs> honest, forthright, and I'm not paid to say this, and I am a tough grader, and I am tough. You guys are tremendous, and when you compare you guys to everybody else, there's no comparison. You guys are just terrific, and I want to thank you on behalf of all the fans for the job you do. You do well, know Randy, I have I hope, I hope you told today, John right? that when you spoke to him on the phone, because <laughs> I'm not John Spelk. I was just going to say, I got yeah. Lance with me today. <laughs> but it's say. very kind of you yeah. to, first of all, listen to our program, to dial us up, and, and to take the time to uh, you know out of your day to participate. So thank you very much for those words. I, I will tell you, Lance, one of the things that I think a lot of people are looking forward to this year, in addition to hopefully a, a much better finish and, and hopefully a much more explosive, if not fun, offense to watch. I do think the enhancement of this defense is is also going to be quite fun because we all know that when the Giants were really good, it still came down to a defense that could impose its will on people. And I wonder how much better this defense is going to be with the enhancements to the secondary and potentially to the pass rush. Well, and actually there's a good way to wrap up because one of the other things that was brought up in the article, we talked about the MVP of the team. The 2021 breakout star that Adam pointed out was Xavier McKinney, who played only six games last season and says that if this guy is able to play an entire season and then you take into consideration what they already have in the secondary, you know, this could be a breakout year for him. And then obviously that would help the Giants immensely because they didn't really see much of him on the field, even in the six games that he played. So, sure. Yeah, I'm with you. I think the secondary is a strength because of the versatility back there. And you just wonder, even if maybe somebody doesn't emerge as a true force opposite Leonard Williams, if the secondary, how consistent that group could play and what they could do on the back end, alleviates the front seven. And maybe you don't need a huge guy statistically because the secondary does a lot of the heavy lifting. I think how those dynamics play out will also be interesting to determine the outlook of this defensive unit. There is a potential for this giant secondary as a whole to be one of the best ones this franchise has ever had. There really is. But again, potential is a very dangerous word. Sure, and health goes into potential. But, yeah, when you look at the veteran experience and the youth, it's a nice mix because you're not banking on just guys that are seasoned. You're also banking on the Darnay Holmes, the Xavier McKinney's of the world, who I mentioned, that could maybe truly blossom now that they've had a season under their belt, or at least in McKinney's case, somewhat of a half a season mm-hmm. under his belt. So that will absolutely be interesting to monitor. All right, that is going to wrap up Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Certainly appreciate everybody for tuning in. A reminder, we'll be back up and running again on Tuesday at noon Eastern. Remember, last week we went to 3 p.m. Eastern to accommodate mandatory minicamp. Now we are back to our normally scheduled time. And this is part of the Giants Podcast Network on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. Paul, look forward to talking to you down the road. Appreciate it. You got it, Lance. For Paul DeTito, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Monday, and always stay locked to Giants.com. Have a good one.